Building any medical or pharmaceutical product is one of the hardest things you can do because it's an extremely regulated market. Then add building a marketplace at the top of that with the typical chicken and egg problem and you are facing a very difficult challenge. But my guest today overcame that challenge. I'm very pleased to welcome Maya Zlatanova. She has already built two software products in these markets. She's a co-founder and CEO of Find Me A Cure, who has helped more than 2 million people to find clinical trials that can save their lives. She's also developing Trial Hub, a platform who has empowered doctors and researchers to efficiently plan more than 6,000 successful clinical trials with the help of data intelligence. Today we are going to talk about how to pivot, how to get to product market fit, and how to deal with clients in this highly regulated industry, how to navigate the corporate structure. Fasten your seat belt for another masterclass of entrepreneurship. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. In this podcast, you will learn from entrepreneurs who have already found product market fit and are scaling up fast. We discuss their challenges and the strategies they have applied to make things work. Think of it as a masterclass about business and product innovation, growth marketing, and leadership. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help mission-driven companies exceed their revenue objectives with growth marketing, product-led growth, and LinkedIn personal branding strategies. Maya, welcome to Mission First. How are you? Very excited to actually meet you today. Listening to you and the, the introduction, I got even more excited. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm very yeah, excited. I'm happy to share my, my, my journey so far with you. This is Mission First. So can, can you start by explaining us what's, what's your mission? To me, working in the clinical research industry is a true mission, a personal and professional. Um, I started my career in clinical research maybe 15 years ago don't have any medical degree, any scientific degree. Uh, it, it was more of a coincidence. But actually what, what made me innovate in the space was actually a very personal story. My sister actually was challenged with a pretty severe disorder. And that's the first time when I realized how dependent we are on clinical research, one way or another. We either, like my sister, need to become part of clinical trials or we wait for clinical trials to be successful and to produce, to bring innovative treatments on the market so that we can benefit better healthcare, better treatments. So that really made me think uh, about clinical trials in a completely different way, not just yet another industry, but industry that we all depend on. Before we dive into the topic, can you tell me a bit which context do I need to be aware of to understand where you are at right now? I mean, going back to your childhood, your past experience, your career, what explains how you are right now at such a position with such a high commitment to, to change this world for the better with your company? Uh, what brought me here? I don't know. <laughs> But I can definitely guarantee you that when I was uh, a child, I would never think that I would be doing what I'm doing. I'm actually coming from Eastern Europe. I'm, I'm originally from Bulgaria. And Bulgaria is the next communist country. And so my parents taught me that starting a business, entrepreneurship in, in general, is something for the rich people, for the people that have connections. And I'm from a normal family. So I would never be able to start a business in the first place. So that's how it's taught. And so for to me, like maybe the dream was to become a part of a big corporation, maybe travel here and there. To be honest, I, I was kind of naive in my high school years. I wanted to be a, a diplomat. 
just because I dreamed so much for traveling the world and I thought well if you're a diplomat then you that that you're gonna do that for a living basically uh, but I was very lucky that I never became a diplomat for one reason or another because that's not exactly what diplomats do at the end of the day um, and I did manage to travel the world at the same time um, but what really brought me was um, taking the risk I remember that in my first company that I started working in clinical research, that was a, a UK company with an office in Bulgaria. I just applied for the job, for a sales position job there, um, and they, they actually decided to give, me, to give me a try to actually develop the German-speaking markets uh, because I graduated at the German high school, and it was kind of a coincidence, really. Uh, and so after this company, like they decided to close their Bulgarian office, it was sold to another uh, owner. Uh, and they gave me this opportunity to either join the London team uh, or I had to find another job basically. And that was the time when I got the first shot and I was around maybe 22, something like that, 20, 22, 23 years old. And then actually I got this, I had to kind of like choose between the sales director uh, job in London, which was kind of my dream to go somewhere else and like have this great job and well-paid job and everything. Or the other opportunity was actually starting my first business together with some ex-colleagues. And I chose the second one, even though I dreamed for all my life uh, to go abroad to have a good like job at a company, well-paid London, even better. I actually chose the second one. I guess I was always a dreamer and that's actually that's how my entrepreneurship career started uh, that first uh, business it opened my eyes of how much I actually like entrepreneurship that I'm a risk taker I remember that in the first couple of months most of the people that we started the business with they kind of quit because they realized that oh my god now we have to, to actually work for our salaries like nobody actually is responsible for our salaries now we're responsible for our salaries if we don't sell we can't actually make money but I stayed even though I saw the high stakes I was young obviously I didn't have um, that much to risk and yes starting Find Me Cure uh, the company it was a couple of years later after this first entrepreneurial experience with all the lessons learned, with all the, of course, not all, the first lessons learned, <laughs> uh, and also um, a lot, a lot bigger mission. Uh, that was after what happened with my sister, basically. Without going too much to the details of the first days, how did it start, and what challenges did you face at the at the, at the beginning of the journey be, before you had to decide to go and start to. to explore a pivot as we're gonna like talk about it soon if i have to go back in time actually that's not my first pivot because even in the first business that i started i kind of did a pivot because in my first business we did uh, we, we were selling face-to-face -face training to the pharmaceutical space uh and i realized at one point that face-to-face -face training is an old-fashioned way for getting training so we actually need to transition to something different or we're out of business uh and back then i was thinking how to how can we make money how can i actually deserve my salary so that's when I actually moved the business towards online training and back then I didn't think that this is a pivot I honestly I didn't know what startup is I didn't know many of these uh, uh, terms I didn't know what venture capital is even the the, the, the definition of a startup later uh, when I started Find Me Cure together with my co-founders it was a little bit more complicated to do the pivot first because um, this company has a bigger mission 
bigger ambitions as well at the same time. And it took us some time uh, to actually figure it out that our initial business idea was not feasible, not at the scale that we wanted like to have. So at the very beginning, we were very altruistic, I would say. We wanted to have this ultimate platform that helps patients to be navigated through the journey of clinical trials. Actually, findmecure.com, that's the platform. It's still up and running and it's something that we do for free for all people across the globe. But our vision was slightly different. We were envisioning um, more like a standardized um, clinical trial navigator that's used across multiple companies, across the pharmaceutical company, for example, a single client, uh, almost as a digital um, replacement of the inefficient call centers, for example, because call centers are famous for not like doing a great job. Uh, and so we were thinking that this is kind of a SaaS model where we kind of, you know, like companies are to sus subscribe for this uh, navigation platform and they, they want to just support patients. The reality was absolutely different. We realized that companies have uh, their budgets set in different ways. Uh, it's more steady per steady, more project by project. So they won't make decisions across like multiple studies. Sometimes they do, but that's very hard if, if, you, if that's your first project of the company. Um, second, everyone was having KPIs for their own study and like, and also the KPIs are more related to how many patients you've actually managed to recruit and not how many patients you actually supported, right? So that was another reality that we, we, we saw. And what's the difference here? Just sorry to interrupt you, like yeah. for the audience, what's the difference between patients recruited supported? and supported? Oh. <laughs> <A> huge. <laughs> Uh, the, so recruited patients means that these are the people who signed the papers to participate in clinical trial, even to sign the papers to go through a screening process, after which, if you are confirmed eligible and good fit for the clinical trial, you start the clinical trial. So basically, it's a commitment uh, on behalf of the patients. Uh, supported patient is to us, it's every single patient who expresses interest in clinical trials. Uh, in understanding what clinical trials are out there, what does clinical trial actually mean, what's the difference between the standard of care now, what are the benefits, the minuses, weaknesses, and so on and so forth. So there is a, a, a huge, um, let's say, much longer process prior to signing the papers. And that's the difference between supported and recruited. Thank you. Yeah, sure. And yeah, going back to like the, the pivot, um, we, we actually decided uh, back then that, uh, okay, we had this idea initially. It's, it validated that it's not gonna, like the business model won't work out as we planned, but we see that the interest by companies is enormous. Like companies do have the problem that we saw at the very beginning. So if they have the problem, maybe we just need to find another solution. Um, and so at the very beginning, we followed what the industry was expecting from us, which was actually providing patient recruitment services. We were promoting clinical trials, uh, helping patients uh, to go through the, let's say, to navigate them, helping them to, to be qualified, to be screened, recruited, and so on and so forth. And that was actually very eye-opening because from this experience, this is more of a service type of thing, if you ask me. I mean, there are lots of companies that say that there are tech companies, patient recruitment. Yes, you may use some technology, but in reality, this is a this is more or less a service company. 
Uh, and we realized that this is um, definitely validation that companies are absolutely struggling with, with this problem, finding the right people uh, and enough people. But at the same time, we saw that this type of solution, what they are expecting, is not a scalable business. But there was another thing that we saw. It's not only a scalable business, but also it's not a feasible solution for them. Because we started seeing that no matter how successful we are with our campaigns, with our approach with patients, and so on and so forth, there were still clinical trials, most of the clinical trials still couldn't get to their targets. And the, the reason was not that we were not doing a good job or that the company like wasn't doing a good job or there is a lack of patience. But the whole clinical trial was planned in a way that it's basically doomed to be failed. That, that basically, yeah, the clinical trial is planned to, to fail. And that's when we started to ask these questions. How do the companies actually plan these trials? Can, can we actually predict which trials will fail with patient recruitment and which wouldn't? And that's actually what gave, the, gave us the idea of uh, moving uh, forward with another product. And the so just to give the big picture to the, to the listeners, are these two different companies or two different products, basically, FanMeaCur and uh, TrialHub? FindMeCure and, and TrialHub are under the umbrella of FindMeCure as a company. Yes, so two different okay. products, one company. And timeline-wise, how long did it take you? You started FindMeCure in uh, 2016? Yep. And when did you like um, develop the second one? 2019. 2019. When, when you decided to... like, It's a pivot, but let's say an adaptation, because you, you still run FindMeCure. Yep. So um, can you explain us a bit why you decided to keep both and mm. why you haven't you know, started from scratch? Yes. Um, there are multiple reasons. The main reason is because actually in the long run, FindMeCure and TrialHub are connected. We, we found out about the inefficient way of planning of clinical trials through the patients, through our interaction on the FindMeCure platform. They were the ones to give us these first signs. Why would I join this clinical trial? My standard of care is better than the clinical trial. Or this clinical trial, I love it, but it's too far away from me. So they were the first people to actually raise these concerns and these questions. Actually, who plans the clinical trial so the patients say no? Uh, and what? And also the different types of no's that patients say to clinical trials. So that really helped us to understand what's wrong with clinical trials. That's the first reason. Second reason, actually, it's the same more or less. Second reason is that we know how to use FindMeCure in the long run. Um, it's just in a different business model. So right now we are a B2B company. We, we monetize through our trial platform. In reality, we may become B2B2C. So that's the reason why we kept the two platforms. Also, um, we kept the same team. Um, also, we were very happy with our investors as well. So we didn't see any reason for us to start like a new company. And we also had very strong brand. I mean, not very strong brand, but the brand in general uh, was getting stronger and stronger. And also the mission was the same. We were solving the same problem, same mission, just the approach was different. Now with these two products, it makes a lot of sense to have both of them because again, as you said, having a lot of patients help you be also be attractive for all the researchers who want to use your services. So then it comes down to 
what are the can you briefly describe what are the the two revenue streams and the business model for for both yeah. products we have one revenue stream uh, and also i want to clarify it's not the researchers that use childhub it's actually the pharma companies and the clinical research organizations and some consulting companies that support research so we monetize solely entirely through our childhub platform which is a SaaS business um, and that's the only revenue that we are getting from If this podcast helps you, please do me a huge favor and click on the follow button on your podcast platform. It helps to grow this podcast faster and to convince the most impactful entrepreneurs of the world to join me in these interviews so that you and other entrepreneurs can learn from them. Then that's a perfect transition to what we wanted to get to after pivoting and then you start with your yes. B2C company and you, you open this It's a B2B and if it's B2B2C solution, um, how do you get to product market fit? Because here, for example, I would have expected that maybe the researchers would pay, but you say, no, that's the pharmaceutical companies that pay. What have you learned on, on this phase, uh, on, on this second phase? How mm. did you get to product market fit with, with Trial Hub? Yeah, um, it was a progress, definitely progress. As you can see, we started in 26, end of 2016. And beginning of 2019, we started the pivot. But let's say 2018 was when we already had the idea that uh, we should go into a different direction. And it took us some time because we were already having business with the other campaigns. So I think that one of the most important decisions we did for the pivot was actually quit on making money for the other arm. We said no longer patient recruitment, no matter that there are plenty of clients out there, like the market is huge. Uh, every single company is struggling, like 80% of clinical trials struggle with patient recruitment. All of them need vendors. So they were coming like organically, but we were very disciplined to say, no, that's not the type of business we want to do. Let's focus now on what actually will be scalable business, really providing an impactful solution. So that was the first decision that we made. Second decision is we went back to the same clients that we had and we started the so-called uh, customer development process. So we went back with doing these interviews, uh, conversations to understand, okay, you told me that you're struggling with this clinical trial protocol. Tell me more about how you actually decided to go about this protocol. How did you do the analysis? Which countries to choose? Which doctors to work with? Uh, why exactly this clinical trial design? What are your plans? And so we really went deeper into understanding how companies get to the final package that then they go and, and find like vendors and, and and conduct like the clinical trial and then go and find vendors for supporting their 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 efforts uh, and that took us probably a couple of months there is something else that i didn't mention as well uh, in 2018 while we were doing these global patient recruitment campaigns that i mentioned the services we, we started see, seeing these first signals that most of the clinical trials are not uh, feasible according to the patients. I already mentioned that. Um, and we started this internal process to assess if a trial is feasible to patients before we even say yes to a project, because we don't want to say yes to a project and then under deliver, right? So we started doing this internal assessment without even knowing that that's also a process within pharma companies and zeros. And out of this process, um, in order to scale that further, our CTO started like during the Christmas holidays, she kind of created the MVP for internal purposes. We wanted to 
streamline this assessment internally so that we know which project, project to say yes and which project to say no. And after the holidays, I was already thinking we need to do something different. He developed the MVP and I was like, okay, now this gives me enough material to go back to the clients and start asking, okay, what assessments do you do? And that's actually how it started, the whole process. So having a very, very, like going back to the basics, let's say, you know, inter like customer interviews, client interviews, in a, in a typical, I guess, mom's, mom's test, uh, you don't pitch yep. anything at the moment. You st so you, you start by asking open questions, what are they struggling with? And then you figure out what they are struggling with. Uh, and, and that's how you, you, you start developing from there and not the other way around. It's, what was the hardest during these, these, like, uh, this, this phase? The hardest was to accept that you failed and to find the energy to, to start from scratch. Um, that was the hardest, especially by that time we were already, we've already hired, we had a team, um, an amazing team and most of the people were still with us. Um, so saying, hey guys, like the, the initial direction was wrong. Now let's go to another direction and having the same energy and maybe even more energy to actually to restart the process. That's, that's even today, I would say that it's still something that it's kind of like painful because we kind of lost the first three years in a way, three years to figure it out, how to get to this scalable type of a business that has the impact that we wanted. So commit like, yes, admitting that was probably the hardest thing. And what have you done in order to get energized again and, and be able to, to move on with that? Especially knowing what I'm asking myself here is because you kept the other one, but the other one, now that you've passed, you went over this phase, it's easy to say, oh, okay, now we, get, we keep on developing the two. Yeah. But at that time, you maybe you are also like, under time pressure, you know, running, running out of money and cash flow. Uh, how, did you decide to kind of park the first solution or like do like 80, 20 rule? Or do you just like keep people 20% yeah. on it and then you do 80% on the others? So how yes. did you keep going? So the good news is that uh, by that stage, we've automated almost fully the other platform so that we could actually park it, like you said, and make sure that we can keep moving this forward. Actually, the other platform was what gave me energy, uh, Jill. Why? Because the other platform helps people on a daily basis. So every day I wake up, I actually know that we are helping people, their families, people like me, like my sister, like my family. So uh, I know that if even if we fail, we actually helped so many people out there that I don't care, honestly. I mean, it's not really like that. Of course I care, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. I also know that I'm doing, if I, if we are to help one person this week, it's worthy. How to deal with clients in this highly regulated industries, you know, how to navigate the corporate structure. You, you, you mentioned to me the first time we talked that you had a few advice on how to do that. Maybe you can explain a bit what's the challenge first before explaining the solutions what is the challenge working with you know, clinical research yeah or pharmaceutical companies i wouldn't say in our case is regulations because um, we're such a type of a software that doesn't deal with the heavy regulations in the industry uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand the regulations we of course we do 
but uh, I'm just saying that we are not like under these heavy regulations that uh, apply once you become a, a solution that's used during a clinical trial, like data management for clinical trials, for example. Um, so, so that that also that that helped us definitely with a go-to-market strategy. Uh, on the other side, honestly, I've been working in the life sciences space like since almost the very beginning of my career. It's like every other big industry. Whenever you work with corporations, it's this the silos in these companies, the fact that you have to deal with multiple roles, the fact that multiple like the different roles maybe not necessarily understand the other role, and you have to spend so much time figuring out how they're connected, um, who owns the budget, who who is the influencer, who's the champion, who's the veto power guy. Like this this whole let's say scene stage is super complicated, and. To add on top of that, the bigger the company, the different it is, that the more different it is. So that means that if you want to go and assess the likes of Novartis, Bayer, and et cetera, et cetera, it's like starting to, to rediscover a new universe. Sometimes they have different titles, but even if you like forget about the titles, the interactions between the different teams may be different. So it's very hard to have this like template. Oh, that's a big pharma. That's how big pharma works. These are the people and so on and so forth. It's you have to focus on building the relationships, being open minded and learn as you go. What's your because I guess you've done your, your, your share of founder sales in this case. Oh, of course. <laughs> so what's your what's your what's your advice with your tip? If somebody starts now to reach out to these different like companies, to figure out who is you know who is a champion who is who is a supporter who is a fan who is a de- who is a final decision maker do you have any tip you can share in terms of sales for that find your own strengths it's the first thing find your own strengths as a person uh because what what works for me wouldn't work for someone else so find out who you are what are your strengths in communicating with people if you're a pragmatic like numbers person maybe like that like find these people that you can connect better um if you're more like people's person uh more emotional like me then go and interact with the people that also like uh, work this way also the mirroring effect helps a lot so see who is on the other side and uh, how they communicate and try to adapt to their communication but also make sure that you 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 are authentic because people understand that people see that when you're authentic when you care when you listen I, I would say that uh, I don't have any specific sales advice for this industry precisely. It's it actually is for across like all industries in general. Be authentic, listen proactively, ask simple, like short questions, proactive, like uh, open questions and listen. And also one last thing, which I discovered um, through the first phase of the customer development, uh, like these interviews with potential clients, don't we do like sales do one very common mistake. They <laughs> they fell in love with the last conversation, and they think that the last conversation is exactly like its validation of like the last problem that they found and the and the solution. For example, don't fall in love with the solution. Fall in love with the problem and look for different perspectives of the problem. So, yes, like I said, most of us salespeople, we 
we remember the, the last conversation we get excited the, like from the last conversation but the last conversation may be misleading so collect more perspectives collect more interviews and only when you bring different perspectives only then you can say okay now i see the patterns now i understand second thing to that look beyond what they're telling you is a problem very often different roles see the problem from different stages so uh you need to understand the problem from the very basics like like the americans say follow the money so what's the problem where the problem actually comes from they may say oh i'm spending so much time on excel and once you create a like a solution oh but i'm so used to using my excel file so look beyond the problem what's really causing this discomfort or lack of results or not success that's actually if, if i have to name one success uh one win there are multiple wins of like uh, my company but the main win is that we were able to see beyond the patient recruitment problem hey before you jump to the next part of this episode one quick info if you don't want to miss the best strategies for entrepreneurs like you Sign up for my newsletter with a link in the description. You will receive a summary of advice from each episode, get personal recommendations based on your startup stage and industry, and you will also receive my most useful growth and LinkedIn marketing strategies. Just follow the link in the description to sign up. Back to the next part of this interview. So ask why five times, for example. That's why you always say. Yes, ask why. Yes, exactly. Ask why the five times. That's also one good methodology. What's your strategy so we talk about sales but of course here there are there are like very long sales cycles i guess um mm-hmm. do you have some kind of also marketing strategies that you are you know applying to, that helps to just convert to stay at the top of mind for these companies and help basically bring let's say warm leads to the the, the salesperson because right now i are the people using your service always do they always have to go through the sales process or can they on their own you know install a demo and uh and, and start using the product um i wish it was so easy and everyone was like like just like i want to sign in and i start using the product in reality in this industry that's close to impossible you need budget approvals you need lots of conversations they can't just use any platform like like that so it goes through a lot of qualification processes and that makes the sales cycle relatively uh longer compared actually compared to other industries more or less the same it, it, but it's a long like longer uh uh sales cycle definitely in this basically in this situation a way to shorten the cycle uh, the, the sales cycle is by really standing out from the crowd and again be authentic and build your brand and the brand can start with a single person from the company it may be the ceo or the business development leader doesn't matter but something that can actually help you with the credibility because one of the uh, there are a couple of steps from the whole process until the, the actual agreement um, is signed uh, that can be reduced and others that cannot so focus on the, the steps that you can actually reduce for example the lead generation the lead qualification part for example so how can you reduce that by making it easier for you to open doors to start like uh, making easier to get to a demo to make sure that the demo converts easier to the next step for example uh and all of these things uh can be shortened by 
having a solid brand and having some credibility. Actually, that's that helped me in the first, let's say, in the first days of sales, um, building this strong presence out there. Find a channel, find a way on stage or like on a platform where you believe that your potential clients are, and make sure that you're out there. You stand out. Um, I don't think there are like classical marketing instruments for that because honestly uh, nowadays with all these digital tools it's everyone does everything at scale in high volumes uh, I was speaking with one of our sales um, uh, directors that it used to be super easy to stand out because uh, if you're a good sales leader um, not leader but like if you're a good salesperson uh, you will follow up uh, regularly, you're gonna send like emails, do voicemails, etc, etc. But now we have the digital tools that automate that. And every single sales director becomes like super duper authentic because everyone is following up. That that actually brings us such a high volume of messages, social media, everywhere. So you always have to think of creative ways to stand out. Maybe it's your angle, it's your perspective, initiatives, doesn't matter. But find this way to stand out uh, from the crowd and uh, to, to, to validate, not validate, I'm sorry, but to showcase that you are a true leader on the market, bringing innovation. Okay, I don't like this word, but let's say bringing a, a real solution and you walk the talk. Two very interesting parts here, walk the talk, sales automation. Um, but first, credibility. What was your way to build credibility? Is your audience on LinkedIn? Was it, was it your way or like what's your platform? Yeah, um, so at the beginning of the company I was based out of London, but uh, after that I relocated back to Bulgaria. So uh, that made my connection, direct connection with the, let's say, decision makers, not that direct. Um, but I would say that it was a mix between be, me being very active on, yes, LinkedIn. I, I, I didn't do it in purpose, by the way. Like, I, I think that's my nature, that I can't just stand to sit down and not speak about problems and things that I am excited about. So I think, I, again, I, that, that's, my, uh, that's my character, my personality. And I was true to my personality. And, and whenever people saw me on conferences, they see that what I am on LinkedIn, I'm the same person in reality. And that actually contributed to this credibility. So that's why I said, whenever you go out, and connect with people make sure that you find you realize it, it starts with self-awareness who are you how can you contribute to the conversation to the other person how can you be helpful uh, very often we speak about give back we actually have the give first fun, uh, mentality that's how I started like to stand out because I did these intros to different people whenever I find like meet someone and I think they they they, they have a very good match with another one so sometimes some of my first clients were people that I met somewhere and I connected, I sent maybe interesting like content. Wasn't even in purpose, but it was really with this mentality. Um, follow my personality and give for How do you walk the talk? You mentioned walking the talk. So what does it mean for you? It means that whenever you commit to something, you deliver. And whenever you can't deliver for some reason, you're out there and you, you admit that you couldn't deliver, and why? Do you have an example of this? Oh, there are so many examples, like, uh, <laughs> like so many examples in the team, outside of the team, in your personal life. For example, um, in the early days when the platform was still an MVP, uh, at the end of the day, not, everyone, uh, never, not everything was perfect. And so we started working with um, our first clients, and our clients had feedback. Uh, 
and not like some feedback was positive, but some feedback was not that positive. Uh, and so uh, they came to us and they said, guys, we like what you've done, but actually this is a problem for us and we, we need you to, 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 to fix that. And so um, every single feedback that our company is recorded, in a, we have a process for that and it's being analyzed, structured, and then uh, put into a, the roadmap whenever the time comes. The air, all of this process is communicated back to the clients. So if you go and speak to our clients, the number one thing that they will say is they walk the talk. Like they always, like whatever they promised, they delivered. And if they couldn't deliver it, for example, for some reason, for example, if they come and say, I need this, I will consult with the R&D team and I'll go back to the client and I say, yes, I wish we also were able to pull this off. But in reality, we can't because. Or if we did a mistake, for example, there was a bug in the early days, like there were bugs. So I would go back and I would apologize. And I would like first the bug was covered as, like as soon as possible. But then I will also commit, yeah, uh, admit, yes, that was a mistake on our end. We, we covered that. That's the rationale behind it. You mentioned something interesting and in, you seem to be automating a lot of things. And I mean, that's one of the secret to scale. Um, and you mentioned to me that in order to to deal with these clients in, in these industries, you mentioned preparing your, your SOPs early, SOPs meaning standard yeah. operating procedures. So what do you mean by that? Um, big corporations and companies, um, uh, they always uh, work with standard operating procedures. So whenever you go through vendor qualification process, they will ask you for these standard operating procedures. And don't get me wrong, we didn't have them like very, very beginning, but pretty soon we knew we, we need to have such standard operating procedures. Uh, in our case, we were very lucky. We had one uh, colleague, she's no longer with the company, but I will be always thankful. Today's like Thanksgiving day, so thank you. Uh, she basically, uh, took the like the, the uh, on like the big task to create our initial standard operating procedures and since then we've been updating them or creating new whenever we had to change any process um, I can't give you any recommendations on how to do that because I'm not the person honestly I hate this shop like I'm not a <laughs> standard operating procedure guy I don't see any meaning in that honestly but uh, that's actually another lesson that I learned just surround yourself with different people, diverse people, and they will be doing the things that you're not good at and the things that you don't like to do. <laughs> that brings me to the last point you wanted to discuss. Like, how do you create, what was your, your secret to create? I know there's no secret, I hate that word, but what, 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 are your, what are your advices to create a good team culture? Because you told me that one of the things you were very, very, very proud of is the team mm. culture that you, you set in your company. Yeah, and this culture evolves. Uh, the more you grow, the more the culture also adapts. Uh, and I have How to many are you now? Just, just so to know. 24 in total. Okay. We are tw 24. Um, but we were 10 people at the beginning of the year. So let's say doubled. Uh, and that really required adaptation to our principles. Not really adaptation, but yes. Um, adapting to more international type of a company because we're no longer the initial office. We have people uh, in different places and that's definitely a, a challenge. Uh, I have to admit that I wasn't that big on principles and culture 
at the very beginning. Maybe I was thinking that everyone is like me and everyone like, uh, when I say like me, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it in a good way. Uh, sometimes I'm actually the negative, like the, the, the bad example. But let's say some of the principles I follow in life, like for example, giving first, uh, uh, at least as much as I, I can, um, being proactive, uh, yeah, like think, like make things simple. I mean, I, I hate complica complicated things. I guess I'm not that smart enough, so simple is better. Um, so a lot of the principles that we had are kind of like natural to me. But my co-founders, they were the ones to actually push me and uh, we started drafting our principles very, at the very, very beginning of the company. And uh, especially one of my, like one of the, the co like two of the co-founders actually were very big on that. And um, I committed to, uh, to actually, yes, uh, like work on this and uh, make sure that we communicate that with the team. And the more we grew, the more I realized how important these principles are because we started like seeing different people uh, we also had people that were no are no longer with the team that like and I saw the difference that some people I mean if you apply these principles and they don't follow these principles basically they, they kind of can, cannot fit the culture and they don't they can't fit the growth of the culture um, for example one of the main principles we currently have is that we're a sports team so every one of us uh, has a role in the sports team and um, we need to like all of us we need to be growing together and support each other to grow together and if someone doesn't like do his role that impacts the other people bottom line now i'm a huge believer that you need to have a culture and that will be your guiding star uh like your your north star how to hire but most of all how to fire and also the other way around how you hire and how you fire it's also one way, like with one signal of your of your culture. Meaning in that case, you use your values and your principle to hire. And if the person are not set or like following the values that you were like, that you were hoping them to follow, mm -hmm. that it's usually a hard decision. But it's better to mm -hmm. like it probably goes back to the saying of like if you think sales, like it's better to have someone who is a less good salesperson that fits to your value than having mm. someone who is a super big performer but doesn't fit to your company. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's across all teams, like definitely. Because like people say, business is not a sprint, it's a marathon. For the marathon, you need support. Like people, uh, business is done by people. So if these people are not fit, like well matched and they don't have the same direction, that they just split and they 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 can't they're not productive even um and another thing about principles or values the way you you, you said it it's not about following them like it's not about following it it's about living them it's about applying them on your day-to-day -day, uh activities it's about giving example and also recognizing the examples giving kudos like to the people who actually show you how you can apply these principles in life and there shouldn't be something that you just place somewhere on the list of like a piece of paper or somewhere on, on the wall. Actually, the principles are exactly these things that you apply on a day to day uh, in your day to day business. And yes, you need to communicate that, but it's a lot more important to live them. And to apply them. Yeah, um, to apply them. You, your platform, you know, help uh, helps clinical trials with 
using data intelligence. Um, do you have any advice on or what was the one of the challenges you had to to build a model that relies or that really helps uh, your your clients based on data intelligence? When you work with data, that's your biggest challenge, the data. And in our case, uh, the fact that this industry has a huge problem and challenge with quality of data. So it was very challenging at the beginning to pre-validate the data sources that we can rely. Especially in our industry, accuracy is number one priority. It's the number one priority. So for our product, we made sure that whenever we are to bring something on the platform, it has the best accuracy possible. But that's the biggest challenge. Whenever you work on data platforms, the quality of the data, the coverage of the data. Also, again, um, we had to be a global platform from day one. That's also a challenge. So how do you find quality data sources across 70 countries at the same time? So that really took us some time. Uh, uh, it, was a, it was a progress. It was step by step. So we identified the low hanging fruits and then we were enriching, 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 and so on and so forth. The more we, we, we were learning from our clients, the more we were developing. So if you ask me, our product is a product of our team together with our clients. How did you, what was the, what's the insight here? What, what did you find out about how to, to qualify your data? What was, uh, a, what, was, what was a big learning on this topic? I can't give you any big learning on that. There, it depends on the, the different types because we work with tens of thousands of different data sources. So for each one of them, uh, it's a different learning and probably my, my CTO will have to like come and tell you more about it. So I can, my learning is that, again, going back to the feedback, that you should have a process in place, collecting feedback and, and seeing beyond the feedback. So that's actually my, my biggest learning. The data is the instrument. The data is the, is the in instrument. It, the what's important and also like I hate these buzzwords we are AI powered and cloud powered and whatever blockchain powered these are the instruments so listen what your clients need to need to do what's the jobs to be done and then look for data AI whatever technology you want service if you want project it's about what you need to be achieving for your clients are Again, you using the jobs to be done framework um I can't, I can't say we do because I don't know the framework that well. Maybe we are. Uh, maybe we are because I'm a huge fan of thinking jobs to be done. But that's, my, that's, my, that's how my brain works. I'm a very emotional but very pragmatic person. So unless I actually see, okay, what do you achieve with that? Unless I'm clear, I won't stop like, asking you questions. I'm curious. Actually, curiosity is a big asset to have, especially in customer development. Why? Like, but how do you do that now? And all these type of questions it's, are super uh, important. Don't get me wrong. I, I, won't, I, I, I can't say that at the initial customer development, I did the perfect job. I, had, I did so many mistakes. And if I go back, I will do it differently, definitely. But I kind of did it successfully since we're here where we are and we're like growing. Um, so curiosity is, is very, very uh, important. And I think that's one of the um, kind of like one of the assets that you need for the jobs to be done methodology as well. What would you do differently? In the customer development, maybe I'll ask uh, different questions of, I don't know, maybe I'll ask, uh, hmm, maybe I'll, I'll go to more stakeholders, more different titles. 
mm, maybe I'll challenge them more. Uh, maybe, uh, so I, I, I applied the mom's test from the day one. I knew about my mom's test from, we were a part of Techstars. So that's another topic that we can speak about like some someday, <laughs> or if you have a question now, of course. Um, but yeah, at Techstars, we had a session on mom's test. And so I knew about this methodology and I was applying that. So let's say that I tried my best. And still, I think that I would have simpler questions. I would show the MVP a little bit later than I did. Yeah. So let's say I was eager to get some positive feedback, I guess, uh, or some feedback. So I would yeah, focus on more questions and showing whatever you have later. Yeah, that's 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 one of the for those who are listening in. Like, so mom's test is about trying to figure out again with your asking open questions, talking about the past, not talking about the future of what did your customer do with competitive, like competitors products or uh, uh, that are related to your product or the service you're trying to sell them. How did they behave in the past? And uh, and, and not asking them the, the worst question, being asking them predictive behavior, which uh, there are tons of examples here of founders of people who just, you know, mm. you ask people if they would like to buy this product and because of people have a, you know, they will always tell you yes most of the time, but the reality is when it, when they come to the decision process normally, they, they, mm. they, they will probably not. And there are so many uh, examples of studies who have been made like that, oh, would you like to buy this, this if we build it? And then sometimes 95% of the people say yes, and then people build it, release it, and then 5% of the people buy it. So uh, the, the mum's test is, is, is about this, and I agree with you that the because you know I started I, I got to know that process also like three four years ago, um, and by having applying it myself with clients or for my own business, you have to do it you have to do it like as often as possible. And the more you do it, the more mm. as you said with my experience too. I I just you you ask you you, you tend to become also uh, better at asking better questions, at challenging people more, at going back to, because the idea of this is ask people, you know, ask people three times the same questions to, to, yeah. to just try to go to the root of the problem. And I, me, one advice, I don't know if you agree with that, but one advice I learned was uh, if you, you can try to phrase a question differently on like three times differently, one after each other. But what I found out recently as well is when you ask something to people and they just explain you something, it's also good to move something else and then two questions after come back and usually they will might even go back to it by on their own, but or you will find some hints here and there mm. and you can come back and say, oh, what you were saying that, what did you mean by the way, bye. Hey, just a 10 second break to tell you. I just released a free video presentation to explain the three key strategies I use to get 7,500 change makers to follow me on LinkedIn and to reach more than 1 million people this year with my posts. It's free. Just follow the link in the description to download it. No, exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, really, again, falling in love with the problem and not the solution is very important. So bring this curiosity where the problem comes from, asking these questions, even same questions one after the other, and also listen which are these last words because what you said is absolutely true. If you ask me a question now, I will think about the answer and I'll give you an answer. If you ask me twice, I would have had some time to think about it and I will probably analyze what I said and come with even more sophisticated answer like to your question. So 
uh, people are not looking at you, oh, you're crazy, why are you asking me the same question? Actually, they see it as another second chance to answer even better. So definitely a must do it. I'm, I'm not doing it all the time, but uh, I'm trying as well. Uh, you know, like the mom's test, sales, customer development, it has so much to do with coaching. And coaching has so much to do with self-awareness. So the, like the one advice I would give to every entrepreneur or an entrepreneur to be, or any person out there is make sure you work on yourself. If you grow, if you scale, like for example, yesterday I was seeing that uh, somewhere on LinkedIn, it's, or someone told me that, I, I don't remember anymore, but it's not about if your company can scale, it's about whether you can scale. And actually, I learned that through my motherhood experience. So nothing to do with entrepreneurship, but actually motherhood. I have two kids, young kids. Actually, I've been yeah, going through motherhood the same way I've been going through the early stages of my business because I gave birth in 2016, uh, 2016 and now in 2021. So yes, <laughs> as long as I'm building Find Me Cure, I'm also like growing as a mom. And so, you know, with kids, so with, when they're babies, you actually, um, uh, you have a like completely different role uh, than when they're toddlers and then afterwards. Because when they're babies, babies, newborns, all you need to do is just make sure that they're safe, that they don't fall, that they're well fed, uh, they slept and so on and so forth. Once they start like being able to speak a little bit, then they have completely different needs. They need to take your time like hugging and uh, like explaining things and be there for them, playing with them. And once they're in high school, for example, like when they're teenagers, then they need completely different things. It's the same with the business. Like once you start, you bootstrap, then you have to be all over the place, then you grow, then you have to become a manager, leader, then you grow further and so on and so forth. So being able to scale it is the single most important thing of every entrepreneur. Talking about learning and self-improvement, what is one book or you know media podcast that had an impact on you? Um, I love books. Actually, I wish I loved them when I was in, in the teenage years, but I was doing more dancing than reading books, I agree. <laughs> but now I love them and I don't have that much time for books. Business and two kids, what can I do? <laughs> uh, but if I have to mention one book that has the biggest impact on me, I mean, I can't give you any podcasts in particular, though I actually love, there is a YouTube channel that I love, uh, and uh, it's called Cold Fusion, and it has a lot of stories. I love biographies and stories of other companies, and the guy actually, he's actually super famous by now, and he has very interesting uh, stories there. So I love like hearing his perspectives. But if we speak about book, the book that really influenced me a lot, there are a couple of them, but the one that's on top of my head is The Medici Effect. Um, and The Medici Effect is not maybe one of the main books that you will receive as an advice for entrepreneurship. But at the same time, I think it's super critical for every entrepreneur to read this book because it gives you the power of interconnection between different industries, different like roles, uh, different perspectives, and how critical it is for you to, to, to create a diverse group of people. People, initiatives, diversity is very critical for innovation. 
Um, and that being said, I just want to mention something else. Uh, you mentioned about uh, um, like um, customer development and innovation. We were speaking about like these two words and how important this is. One thing that I realized recently, not that, that quite recently, but customer development and innovation is not something that you do once. It's, it's an ongoing process. The moment you stop, that's the moment you stop you stop growing it's same with team the moment you stop like and like uh, inviting these different diverse group of people that's the moment you stop like innovating as well because innovation comes from intersections from ideas intersection of perspectives and yeah for, for whoever has the chance to read this medici effect find me on linkedin and, and let me know that you read it and you liked it i'm pretty sure I, I would be interested to hear which of the stories there you like the most I'm gonna read it because this is the first time I hear about it. So the Medici effect and cold fusion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a tradition that I just started. So it's not really a tradition. We use the second one. Um, I asked, you know, previous guests that I recorded, not in order of the podcast appearance, but podcast recording. So you don't know who this is, but to ask a question to my next guest. And okay. uh, the question that was left for you, not knowing it was you, but is uh, what was a person that inspired that inspired you to go on the impact path? I can't say it was a person, but it was an institution, or let's say an organization. Uh, the reason I started thinking about impact, obviously the whole story with my sister was definitely impactful on my way of thinking, but what caused me to actually start acting, start doing something, was one question that I received while I was preparing for a competition um, organized by the Singularity University. Uh, Singularity University is an academy for entrepreneurs and they had a, like a regional competition for different people. Uh, and if you win this competition, not this win competition, but like the final competition, you get to go to NASA where they have like, a, I think it's NASA or they have some facility in like some like in Silicon Valley and you get to uh, work and meet incredible people like Peter Diamandis and um, um, uh, like many, many, many other like interesting people. Um, and so they asked me to prepare for this competition. They asked me, what would you do? What's this one idea that will impact at least one million people's lives? And that was the most powerful question that I ever got. Because at this time, I was still working in my previous business. And somehow I started thinking, I am actually kind of like helping professionals to get certification and conduct research, but that's not actually impacting people's lives. And when I had to pitch an idea, I was in front of the, like, the camera like now, and I was thinking, how can I impact one million people's lives? Me. That's when the idea of finding cure came in, more or less. That's when I realized that if I can help at least, if I can help one million people like my sister, like my family, I would definitely impact their lives. That's a very good question. Thank you very much for sharing sure. also your answer for that. Um, can you tell me one thing about you I wouldn't be able to find out online? Uh, uh, I don't know. Like, what's like on? I don't know what's on online. What's online and what isn't? I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm like not sharing something. I have like some shady secrets or something like that. Um, 
maybe you wouldn't find that I love dancing and I did ballroom dancing for many years. And actually ballroom dancing uh, brought me to entrepreneurship more or less and to sales, um, in fact. Because ballroom dancing, uh, maybe not many people know, but it's, it's a sport. It's actually pretty, pretty rigorous sport because you're kind of like an individual, but at the same time, you're a couple with your partner. Uh, so you kind of like do the individual female role, but at the same time, you have to dance with your partner. So it's, it's very, very interesting, like dynamic. Also, when you go to a competition, they never ask you, how do you feel? Like, do you have your period? Uh, like, have you eaten? And yeah, did you sleep well? You perform. And you, you either perform well or not. And business is like that as well. Fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, so ballroom dancing maybe is one of the things that you would easily find like anywhere. What is your... Uh, what is your ask to the audience and I mean and, and to where can people find you uh, online the website and what is your ask for the audience what you can ask whatever you want are you um, looking for investors are you looking for patients or I mean or uh, so that's your your chance yeah. uh, my ask to the to the audience is uh, find your authenticity like find find who find out who you are and like like do something that actually keeps you um, work on something that matters, matters to you and the society. As long as you do that, then you're contributing to every one of us, to me, to you, and like to your families and friends and everything. That's, that's my ask to you. If we all people think like that, then I think that we have better chances to, to work on something more positive, hopefully. Especially in climate change, if you have ideas, go there, because in Bulgaria we feel the climate change. <laughs> uh, but other than that, you can also find me on LinkedIn or with my name, Maya Zlatanova. Um, connect with me. If you have any ideas what we can improve, please go ahead and please radical candor. So give me the, like the full feedback. I don't need the, the nice words. Just tell me what you think and uh, what we can improve. Um, actually, yes, sharing is caring, people say, but that's really the case. So. Uh, any idea or suggestion, please let me know. If you think you can connect me to someone, someone that's, yeah, maybe relevant, interested, definitely. When it comes to investors, I don't know. Like I, I think that, um, uh, yeah, if if you care about the space and you want to learn, not just about our company, but the space in general, because I am truly passionate about clinical research and life sciences as a whole. Happy to connect, happy to brainstorm together. What can we do to improve the whole industry and the success rate there? Thank you very much, Maya, for this interview and sharing all these insights with us. Uh, I wish you a great day and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon somewhere in Berlin or uh, around the world. Great, Joe. Thank you so much as well. I hope it was interesting conversation to, to, to your audience. And yeah, thank you for the invitation. Hey, if today's episode was useful, share it with your entrepreneur's friends so that we can all have a bigger impact on this planet and give it a five star on Apple Podcasts. That will make my day. Thanks so much in advance. Have a nice day.